0: This month marks the 51st Observation of Earth Day, which, in the past decade, has become one of the largest secular observances in the world. This year, more than 1 billion individuals in over 190 countries are engaged in action to promote conservation and environmental protectionism. In this current moment, the discourse surrounding environmentalism seems to exist primarily in the realms of science and politics, but we wanted to take this opportunity to talk to a couple of researchers who study humankind's relation with the earth in a broader perspective. This is Julia Baker, your new host of the Oxford Common. The academic fields of both environmental history and future studies originated in the late 1960s and early 1970s during the rise of the mainstream environmental movement. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how these two areas of study look at our relationship with the environment and how these valuable perspectives can engage and inform our environmental understanding. Our first guest, environmental historian Aaron Stewart Malden, spoke with our new humanities correspondent, Tom Willard, from her home in Florida. Erin is assistant professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and the author of Unredeemed Land, an environmental history of civil war and emancipation in the Cotton South, which is available now in paperback.
1: Hello, uh, my name is Thomas Willard, and I'm the humanities correspondent for the Oxford Comment. I'm here today with Erin uh, Malden. Thank you very much for joining us on the Oxford Comments. Uh, could you quickly introduce yourself for us, please?
2: Sure, uh, I'm Dr. Erin Malden, and I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg campus. I have a book out with Oxford University Press. It's called Unredeemed Land, an Environmental History of the Civil War and Emancipation in the Cotton South. Came out in 2018, but it just paperbacked, so buy it now. Um, And I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Of course. So could you uh, tell us a bit more about the history of environmental history, both its roots and the new directions that you see the field moving in? Sure. Uh,
2: So environmental history is one of the newest disciplines of history, and yet it's one of the oldest forms of storytelling. Um, In ancient times, when people lived very close to nature, uh, and lack sort of the technology to control nature at the level that we do now. Um, you notice that their storytelling, their writing, even the laws that they use to govern themselves always put nature at the center. And many of the deities of ancient societies all around the world personified aspects of nature, like weather or crops or vegetation or the hunt, et cetera. And if you upset these deities, right, that was the reason for natural disasters and large-scale environmental change. Environmental history as a field, however, uh, did not actually coalesce around any sort of uniform orientation until the 1960s and 1970s, when mainstream environmentalism uh, sort of propelled people to not only act out in protests or, you know, demand new legislation at the state level across the world, but also in their academic work. And so environmental history combines a lot of different aspects of academic pursuits around the world, including the Annales School in France, sort of the subaltern studies of the Global South, as well as agricultural and ecological perspectives of Western institutions, and they all sort of came together really in the 1970s. And since then, environmental history has been the fastest growing subfield of history. Um, And we have organizations all around the world and grad programs now specifically for environmental history. So still growing and sort of finding new ways to speak to new audiences.
1: It's it's really interesting to hear about the kind of expansion of the field and and how it's developing, especially with, as you mentioned, um, grad programs and that kind of thing. So what key moments in environmental history uh, would you say inform our current understanding of our relationship with the earth?
2: So people have interacted with the environment in ways that they recognize as harmful to the environment for as long as people have existed. And you can find ways of controlling people's access to the environment and access to natural resources as far back as the ancient Greeks in, you know, England, for instance, Uh, in the Middle Ages and medieval times and up through the Victorian era, right, um, natural resources were generally legislated for uh, kings and nobles and, you know, poaching was a really big deal. So, There are lots of examples from around the world, but I would say the big moments for paradigm shifts in the way we interact with the environment would be colonization on a large scale. Uh, First, the wave in the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries that sent Europeans out across the world, but mostly in the Western Hemisphere, and the discovery of new societies and new species fundamentally reshaped sort of ways of knowing during the enlightenment because so much of the ancient texts that governed people's understanding of the world were thrown into doubt when they found new species that were not in the bible or new peoples that were not you know mentioned by the ancient greeks etc and then you have the industrial age and we cannot understate the effects of the Industrial Revolution on the ways that people interacted with the environment primarily because it not only gave people technology to uh, alter their environment in new ways, but also a new worldview that altering the environment on a large scale was preferable or an improvement over what had come before. And so the eraser of indigenous peoples The use of industrial technology to limit access of indigenous peoples to natural resources, the use of imperialism to shift the way that peoples across the world interacted with their environment. I think those two big scale processes uh, were really the driving forces behind the ways that we interact with our environment today. And of course, that accelerated after the world wars and in the 20th century, as during the Cold War, we added nuclear anxiety to that. So you have really big scale historical processes uh, that change the way that people think about access and then interact with their environment.
1: So generally, what does environmental history tell us about humankind's relationship with the earth? And how do you see those patterns in in our present moment?
2: So the standard definition of environmental history is the study of humankind's interaction with nature in the past and how nature affected human affairs. So there's two sides to that coin. And there are different ways that environmental historians try to study those interactions um, and relationships between nature and culture. Uh, The first way is what we call material environmental change. So that's what I do, right? The study of uh, soils and animals and uh, sort of material environmental change. In the past, this is focused mostly on notions of destruction, right? Uh, There's nature. And then humans come in and mess it up, right? And that was the typical timeline of the older literature. But now we're less focused on the nature-culture dichotomy, and environmental historians are better understanding and writing about the ways that environmental change is often culturally or socially constructed. And what looks like an improvement to one person may look like destruction to another. Then there's cultural and intellectual history, and environmental historians try to get it uh, sort of the cultural artifacts created by interaction with nature, landscape paintings, poetry, things like that, and then intellectual history, so the way that various figures have thought about and helped other people think about the environment, and this includes the study of religion, because religions across the world sort of have helped dictate humans' interaction with nature. And the final piece of environmental history is trying to help people understand how humans have legislated their interactions with the environment over time. And this is obviously the one that people think about when you say environmental history. I do environmental history of the Civil War, and you say that to your average person on the street, and they're going to say, oh, I didn't know we had environmental legislation during the Civil War. And it's like, well, that's not what I do. We did, but never mind. Or I didn't know the environmental movement existed back that far, right? So there are lots of people who study ancient, early modern and then of course, mostly after 1880, society's ways of uh, creating legislation that dictates either the protection of the environment, the conservation of various natural resources or simply people's access to various places around the world. So those are sort of the types of ways that environmental historians try to get at understanding that interaction of people and
1: environment. So before your work, little attention is being paid to the environment as potentially the key player in influencing the Civil War and and its aftermath. So thinking about your work in Unredeemed Land, how did the research um, introduce a new perspective on how we understand the Civil War and slavery?
2: I was lucky enough to be writing this book during a exponential rise in interest in the interaction between uh, military society and environment. And uh, that interest among historians of all stripes affected the study of the Civil War. And before I published my books, there were a few others that began to think about the environmental history of the American Civil War and explicitly how various campaigns on the Union or Confederate side affected the environment, or on the other hand, used um, ideas about the environment as a weapon of war or an object of war. My book uh, tries to take that work and sort of look beyond the Civil War itself. For me, it's important to know the direct and indirect effects of Civil War militaries on the environment, but even more, I know that environmental change didn't stop being important in eighteen sixty five you know, lead it and surrender. And everybody was like, Oh, well, that's that's done. You know, pre-war status quo. everything's fixed. And so, especially for uh, farmers and individuals, the fighting of a four-year war on their land was naturally important for a long time after the Civil War. And so what I try to do, In this book is use the insights of the natural sciences which is something common to uh, material environmental history so I look at soil science and dendrochronology and hydrology and my understanding of sort of forest succession uh, and other aspects of ecology to reread historical sources that we've been looking at for a long time like civil war soldiers letters Or farmers' journals or agricultural publications and think, okay, what kind of environmental change is prompting these thoughts or these ideas? What's going on in the background and how does thinking about the environmental changes of the Civil War era, the ecological legacies of the Civil War, how does that change our understanding of reconstruction
1: or emancipation? Thank you. Thank you very much for that. And so as a historian, obviously, it's important to look at how disciplines interact with each other and how they cross reference um, across subjects. So how do you see the discipline interacting and informing other fields of study that also study the environment?
2: So environmental history is one of the most explicitly interdisciplinary fields of history and it is not ashamed to borrow heavily from many, many different disciplines. And I think for that reason, it's difficult to define what environmental historians do because lots of people who do environmental history come from or have training in other fields. Medical historians often study with epidemiologists. You have people like me who are really into the hard sciences and soil science, You have environmental sociology and, you know, historical geography is almost the same thing with a different methodological lens. So we have lots of partners in fields just outside of history. And I think those connections make environmental history stronger because not only does it expand the audience for our work, but it also helps rewrite traditional thinking about historical narratives Um, benefiting from others'
1: methodological innovations. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Are there historical themes or subjects that you think need more environmental historical influence?
2: There are. Oddly, gender history uh, in environmental history has been lacking for a really long time, despite calls for more gender in environmental history since the early 1980s, specifically by Carolyn Merchant. That has not happened to a great extent yet, which is interesting considering that agitation for environmental cleanups and the correction of industrial pollution in communities often comes from women, whether you're talking about the U.S. in suburbia, the U.S. in urban areas, or, of course, in the global south. Many of those movements are actually led uh, by women, and so we need to find a place for them in how we write or what we write about. The other thing I'd say is needed, and there are a few people working on this, but there are informational obstacles. And that is that most of the world's food supply and agricultural systems and industrial systems are controlled by a handful of companies. These multinational corporations like Nestle um, or Monsanto, and in a previous era, you know, Standard Oil, or the United Fruit Company, these companies are enormously influential in shaping environments all over the world, often from corporate offices in the US, Britain, or Australia. And we need to pay more attention to that. My friend Bart Elmore wrote a great book about Coca Cola, and he's writing one about Monsanto. But of course, even through Freedom of Information Act, requests it's difficult to get access to some of these corporate records and it's hard to track environmental change when you know a company is outsourcing a lot of the dirtiest parts of its business to places across the world so there's a real need for interest in the history of capitalism more generally but more specifically businesses and labor practices and how that sort of changes the way that people interact with the
1: environment Thank you very much for that and for joining us um, on the Oxford Comments. All that remains to say is um, congratulations on the publication of your book in paperback. Thank
2: you so much for having me, Tom. I had a good time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: For our second interview, we were excited to welcome all the way from Sydney, Australia, recent VSI podcast guest Jennifer Gidley, past president of the World Future Studies Federation and author of The Future, A Very Short Introduction. Jennifer has recently designed a course for Ubiquity University on the environment and our global futures, topics she discussed with our new correspondent for the social sciences, Christine Scalora.
3: My name is Christine Scalora. I'm the social science correspondent for the
0: Oxford Comet, and I'm joined
3: by Jennifer Gidley. Jennifer, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
4: So I'm Jennifer, talking to you from Australia. I've been a futurist for over 20 years, drawing on my career initially as a psychologist and educator. So I'm more a social scientist than an environmental scientist, but I have a great passion for the environmental issues, particularly those of today. I was president of the World Future Studies Federation for eight years, which is a UNESCO and UN partner. And in that role, I presided over UNESCO-funded projects in several developing countries, working with young people and in, in trying to empower them to realise they can create their own futures. So I worked with hundreds of the world's leading futurists. I'm currently an adjunct professor at the Institute for Sustainable Futures in Sydney. And I'm director of research at the Oceanic Research Institute. Our role is uh, regenerating the ocean.
3: Thank you. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the field of future studies and how has our sense of the future changed over time?
4: Okay, so... The future studies field emerged as an academic field uh, around about the 60s and 70s. Prior to that, futures thinking, especially scenario planning, was in the early 20th century used largely by the US, Russia, Germany for their military and their war planning. A big shift occurred when in, uh, in the 60s and early 70s, a group of people who were already at the time very conscious of Looming environmental issues founded the World Future Studies Federation. Their interest was to democratize futures thinking. So they were aware of all this war planning and that the futures methodologies were being used for that. And they wanted to bring these futures methodologies and ways of thinking about the long term out into the world. So that was the beginning of the World Future Studies Federation. And a lot of other people were were beginning to get involved in uh, futures thinking in a different way. In terms of how our sense of futures changed over time, depends a little bit on your time scale. I could talk about 3,000 years of futures, as I do in my, my book, The Future, A Very Short Introduction. But I think that might take us a bit far afield. So I think I'll just focus on the last 100 years or so. Early in the 20th century, futures thinking was mostly about prediction. So if you think about the early 20th century, science was dominated by Newtonian physics and its mechanical universe, and people were very focused on finding better and better ways to predict the future or to predict anything in modern science. Then we had quantum physics and Einstein's relativity, and these actually turned the concept of time on its head All of a sudden, linear time, the idea that there was a past, present and future became unravelled by the notion of Einstein's relativity. And the idea that there was one future was was really thrown out by quantum physics. So it took until the early 60s for futurists to realise that there's no one future. The the people working in futures at that time in in the 60s and 70s Suddenly realised that there was multiple futures, that there are many futures as there are people. So I also talk more about this in my chapter The Future Multiplied, chapter two of my book The Future. So the, the consequence of this change in thinking to shift from one future to multiple futures is that if there's no one future, then it really cannot be predicted. So there was a sort of parallel realisation that prediction, which is one of the approaches to future studies, was really just one approach. And there are several other approaches to creating the future. I talk about in my work five main approaches, predictive, critical futures, which really draws on critical theory and looks at things like whose future are we talking about and where does the power lie. The third one Is cultural futures, which is really a kind of multicultural perspective. So there is the mainstream approach to futures, and then there is uh, what do other cultures think? What do women think? What do youth think? What do elders think about the future? The fourth approach is, I call it participatory futures, and that's all about how do we empower people to take back their agency and to realize that they have actual power in creating their own futures. And the fifth approach is integral futures, which is a very integrated, holistic approach which incorporates any and all of, of methodologies and approaches that people want to use. And that's primarily the approach that that I use.
3: So can you talk about the development of environmental futurism, particularly since the 60s and 70s, and how has futurism engaged with the question? of the environment
4: throughout its history? Sure. Well, I'd say that there's there's really no subfield of environmental futures within the future studies field. We also tend to avoid the term futurism in, in the field because of its association with the far-right radical art movement in Italy in the early 20th century. So that's just a bit of an aside what i would say is the future studies field today is not especially known for its work in relation to environmental challenges or even the climate change crisis personally i find that a bit disappointing because while i was president of the world future studies federation i worked very hard to raise the issues about our climate crisis i've written some articles about this issue and i think personally this is the greatest challenge we have today and uh I'd like to see more futurists working on the climate and environmental challenges. Uh, there is an article that I wrote. It's called Understanding the Breadth of Future Studies through a Dialogue with Climate Change, which is very much what we're we're talking about today. I wrote that in 2016 and it was published in the World Futures Review. So for me, it's quite ironic that futurists today are not so interested in or not so focused on on environmental issues because many of the early future scholars were very much focused on this. In fact, they were so far ahead of their time about the climate issues and the, the problems with exponential growth. In the 60s and 70s, there was a strong crossover between people involved in the the Federation, the founders of the Club of Rome, and some of the seminal books that were raising awareness about the environment. I'll just mention a few of these key books. Silent Spring was written by Rachel Carson in 1962, and really that spawned the beginnings of the environmental movement. The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich in 1968 was very much about the concern about the rising population would, uh, you know, decimate the resources of the earth. Future Shock by Alvin Toffler was in 1970. The Limits to Growth by Dennis and Donella Meadows in '72. That was actually commissioned by the Club of Rome. So these seminal books linked futures thinking or long-term thinking with the looming environmental crisis. But in a sense, uh, what I see is as the environmental crises have worsened. There seem to be even less future scholars engaged in environmental work. There is a very important institute in Sweden, the Stockholm Environment Institute, and there are a lot of futurists working there. And of course, there are a lot of people working in environmental science who are very much working towards the future and the concerns about the future. They probably wouldn't call themselves futurists. And futurists probably wouldn't either. (laughs) So I think part of the problem is the siloism in our society, where we have experts in one field, not recognised by other fields or scholars in other fields. In this regard, future studies as a field is not well understood outside of the field. In some ways, it contributes to its own isolation by having its own separate journals and conferences. But then that's what all disciplines do. So I'm very much an advocate of transdisciplinarity as we go forward. I think that we really very much need to, all of us move out of our disciplines and our fields and begin the conversations with other fields and other disciplines, because the whole system of the earth and the ecosystem, really the different parts of it need to be speaking to each other.
3: What sort of interactions Uh, with other fields do you hope to see from the field?
4: I would very much like to see future studies as a field interacting more with other fields, particularly environment, environmental studies and climate science, and informing other fields of the issues and the, and the, the methods and technologies that are available through the future studies field. Part of my own mission in writing The Future, a very short introduction, was to take futures thinking and the knowledge accumulated in the field out into the wider world to reach a, a wider audience because I was very much aware that this this wasn't really happening. And people in the future studies field kind of complain about the fact that, you know, nobody's listening to them and nobody's, you know, people are, are sort of coming into talking about the future without realising that there is a field that's been going on for 50 or 60 years. So as I said, this is very much my, my mission in, in the book, The Future. And I'm delighted to say that, that now that my book is available, not only in futures courses around the world, but also, you know, many other courses are taking up this book to find access to the futures research and, and understandings. So, uh, also through my Integral Global Futures courses with Ubiquity University, I hope to reach a wider audience. So, I've I've got courses on on the environment, sociocultural issues, and geopolitical systems, which are all, in my view, very much interacting with each other. So, the thing is, to me, we we can't just keep things in isolation anymore we need to look at all the interactions between not just the disciplines and fields but between the challenges that we face and the innovations that we face. So what I am seeing is the beginnings of the future studies field waking up to the importance of interacting with other fields and I think we're starting to see the beginnings of a wake up to the fact that there is future studies field and literature out there, as people in other fields begin to to realise that, they will understand that there's literature on how to think about the future, why we need to think about long-term futures, how we can help people to participate in the design of their own futures, and how we can empower people to have more agency to create the future they want, including the environmental and climate future that they want.
3: I'm wondering if you... Can you expand on some of the methods and technologies in the field that you think are really beneficial to other areas of study?
4: Well, yes. This is a very big area, and I go into that in quite a lot of uh, detail in, in my article on understanding the breadth of future studies through a dialogue with climate change. This this involves talking a little bit more about these these various approaches within what I call a predictive empirical approach This is really talking about the probable future. So it's about trend analysis, prediction and control. Methodologies used, surveys, trend scenarios, something called technology assessment. One of the issues with this this approach is that the variables can't be controlled anymore. And we're we're kind of beginning to realise that trend isn't destiny that in spite of the best trend prediction and the predictive scenarios and modelling, life is becoming very much more chaotic, particularly in the, in the area of climate research. So what a lot of us in the field are encouraging people to do is not just think about the probable future, but think about a range of possible futures, a range of alternative futures. And that's what I do in my course on integral global futures, where I look at what the challenges are and then what are the alternatives and opportunities that other people are working with. And that, that comes under what I call a cultural or interpretive futures where we recognise that we can learn, for instance, from Indigenous cultures about ways to deal with the climate and the environment that that Western, so-called Western culture, hasn't really been working with. And then once we consider all these possible alternative futures people can start to think about what are their preferred futures and this is this is a normative approach so this is what i call the critical or postmodern approach it's a normative approach and it looks at what people would prefer what they would desire and it helps people to work towards those those desired futures and and this is where scenario development is an important methodology fourthly there's there's the idea that people need to participate, that the future is not something that anyone else can can dominate or control for us, even though this is largely what we see, that people need to participate. And and a lot of communities, local shires and councils and so on are beginning to introduce the idea of participatory workshops. And this really empowers people to realise that they can have a say in what the future is going to be. And then, uh, fifthly, there's this integrative or holistic approach, which really brings in systems thinking, complexity sciences, a mixed methods approach where, yes, modelling is important. We need to know what the trends are, but we also need to know that the trend is not the ultimate way that the future will go. And when we see very concerning and damaging trends, such as what we see at the moment with the, the heating of the environment and the heating of the ocean, potentially creating devastating effects in the future, we need to turn things around. We need to say, well, we don't want that trend. People want to to have different futures to what the trends are suggesting. And this is where participatory and, and cultural futures come in. And we need to look at many other views. So what does the
3: study of the future tell us about humankind's relationship with the earth? And how do you see those patterns in the present moment?
4: Okay, so I think if we... If we look at the the long-term future based on the current trends, we see a future that's rather bleak. And I think we see a dominant global mindset or worldview that doesn't really care about the earth, that doesn't really care about the ocean and doesn't really care about the environment and, and the species that are potentially going extinct. Because the trajectory we see is unless we start to turn things around, The Paris Agreement, for instance, tells us that we need to get global warming down below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Well, in many parts of the world already, uh, including many parts of the US, the average temperatures are already two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and this is very disturbing and this is why we're seeing increasingly extreme floods and wildfires the death and bleaching of coral reefs we're seeing floods already before sea level significant sea level rise we're already seeing floods that are getting people people are having, having to move from their houses in in the east coast of of the US and and we can see potentially see mass migration on a scale not seen for 10,000 years and yet we are not seeing sufficient reduction in carbon emissions. We're seeing that the coal and the oil companies that that control all of this still having a very strong influence on, on politics. So we're, what we're seeing, I think, is, is a dominant mindset and a, and a dominant governance of the earth, which doesn't really care about the earth, which takes a short-term view and says, well, as long as we're making plenty of money, What does it really matter? There are two futurist perspectives that I'll introduce here. One is is called Malthusian, and this is very much a doomsday future. So this has come from um, a couple of hundred years ago when Malthus wrote a book about the population explosion that he predicted. This is where people like Paul Ehrlich have, have come from, talking about the population bomb. So that idea is that we're really going to have a doomsday future and and there's not much we can do about it, so just get used to it. The other contrasting view is from the cornucopians, who are the the cornucopia, is the horn of plenty. And the cornucopians are really, uh, I would call them techno-utopians. They think that technology can fix everything. So let's not worry about the earth. Let's not worry about what's happening Let's not reduce emissions or be concerned about the damage that we're doing to the Earth because technology can just fix it. We can geoengineer anything. And Silicon Valley is kind of a hub of, of what I call technotopians. The Singularity University, for instance, is focused on technology fixes for the world's problems. But they see the future as living in satellite cities or moving to Mars rather than focusing on what we can do about Earth. In my view, this is pure science fiction. If we can't fix the Earth, how are we going to focus on a living civilization on Mars? So I take a middle view. I'm, I'm not a doomsdayer, but I don't think technology can fix everything. I think we have very serious problems with the climate issues but i believe there's plenty we can do about it here on earth and we need to start moving in this direction very very urgently
3: you've talked about how scholars and researchers can really benefit from futures thinking and future studies how does that apply to the rest of us the non-scholars out there
4: well look i'll i'll just i'll just mention that although i said that i think the climate crisis is definitely the the biggest crisis that we have to face in the future. In in my book, The Future of ESI, I mention three grand global challenges and climate crisis is one of them. And I'll just mention the other two because they're very interwoven as far as I am concerned. The first one is rapid urbanisation. We now have more than 50% of the world's population living in cities And that's really grown quite exponentially in the 20th century and continuing to do so where the so-called developing nations that were not industrialised 50 years ago are in a great rush to become industrialised. And, you know, within another 20 years, we're probably going to have about 65% of the population urbanised. And this causes loss of agricultural land and food shortages. However, this can all be turned around by creating ecological cities, creative, smart, and networked cities. So there needs to be a shift to what's called new urbanism. The old, old urbanisation was driven by industrialisation and globalisation. The new urbanism is, is driven by the idea of creativity and ecological awareness. So this is an important turnaround the second global challenge grand global challenge is education because at present we're still education is still dominated by the factory model or the industrial era model which trains children for jobs that won't exist in the future new kind of education an evolutionary or post-industrial futures of education would include broad literacies such as climate literacy ocean literacy ecological sensibility and futures thinking so really, to put it simply, unless we're educating children to understand the issues that we have and to be literate about these problems and to have an ecological sensibility, the next generation will, will not be able to help you know, any more than the current generation. So the, the, the climate crisis is really very much interwoven with these issues of urbanisation and, and education. And essentially, I would say that In the 21st century, with the challenges we face, we need a complete overhaul of all our operating systems, our thinking, our education, the way we're urbanizing, the way we do economics. I suppose in summary, we must redesign all our operating systems to completely overhaul everything in order to meet the crises that we face. So it
3: sounds like we could all kind of benefit from learning how to do some futures thinking and future studies?
4: I think definitely everybody could benefit from taking a long-term view and applying this long-term thinking and some of the methodologies to all of the crises that we're facing, particularly the climate crisis.
3: Thank you so much for your time and sharing all this
4: really interesting information with us. Well, thank you. I've I've very much enjoyed the conversation and, and thank you for listening.
0: We want to thank our guests, Erin Stuart malden author of Unredeemed Land, and Jennifer Gidley, author of The Future, A Very Short Introduction. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for an excerpt from each of their books, along with a suggested reading list that provides even more context for understanding both the history and the future of the environment. New episodes of The Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to The Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of The Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 60 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Julia Baker, thank you for listening.